Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I think I have that down to muscle memory now. Uh, I'm here today with Emma Bridgewater, my co-host. I'm, of course, Tristan Johnson, the other co-host. How's it going today, Tristan? Not too bad. Uh, behind the desk, we have uh, Susan Anthony, who's got a bit of the giggles right now, so she might not be able to speak for a little bit. But um, I'm fine. I, I, I just uh, I'm perplexed. When technology doesn't work, it just could be anything, really. And I, it's it's a world I don't understand. <laughs> Dogs too. It's uh, a long story. Anyways, we have a very special guest tonight, hailing from the Department of Anthropology. We I want to welcome Emily Pitts into the station today. Thanks for having me. Emily Pitts is a MA student, a master's student in the anthropology department, and we're going to talk a lot about the kind of really cool stuff going on for indigenous peoples living in urban centers, specifically about the, this urban center we're in right now. So let's get started. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the kind of research you're doing. Okay, so my research um, is in linguistic anthropology, and it focuses primarily on the Friendship Center in London, Ontario. And it's looking at why the Friendship Center is particularly important for urban Indigenous peoples, especially in an environment where um, urban Indigenous peoples don't necessarily have all of the um, resources that they might have on a reserve. And so a friendship center is really important to kind of fill those niches where you might need something that's culturally appropriate or something that you can't find maybe at a standard doctor's office or um, maybe at your school even. And so you go to a friendship center to kind of fill those needs. And so the research is looking at being very explicit and kind of opening the doors to um, looking at why that's important, especially for people that aren't really aware that it exists in the, in the city. So what are these places like? Are they like medical centers, community centers? They're kind of a little bit of both. Um, so the center I'm looking at, for anyone who's wondering, is the Namorant Friendship Center in downtown. And so the Friendship Center does a lot of things. So there are health services. Um, there's also things for women, like pregnancy um, classes to let them have information about what it's going to be like, um, culturally appropriate ways of dealing with that. They have youth groups for children. They have a soup kitchen for people who potentially aren't as high income as some other ones. They also have counseling sessions for people in different walks of life, um, beating clubs, uh, they have monthly powwows, so you can go there and be able to connect spiritually with different aspects as well. You can go in, you know, just to hang out with people. They foster a, a very strong community environment in the area. And so it's just, it's a lot of different things trying to fill those holes and provide the support for people who might not necessarily find it in other places. Sounds like some pretty good third space stuff going on there. Yeah, it's very nice. <laughs> I wish there were more of those. Um and in your little blurb that you wrote to us when we like reached out to you to come on this show, you mentioned something that these these friendship centers provide something that you called cultural validation. Can you elaborate on what that means? Okay, so for um, a lot of indigenous peoples, based on uh, history in Canada and everything like that, they don't necessarily feel like they fit in anywhere because for a lot of them, in the city at least, I mean, some of them live on the reserves or have family on the reserves and they kind of move back and forth between city and reserve. But for some of them, 
you know, they're second generation, third generation urban dwellers. So that means they don't necessarily have a connection to a reserve or to other family members who might have a very strong connection to either land or cultural aspects. Um, and therefore, they're not really, they may not feel that they're completely indigenous, whether that's because of those aspects or because of histories of residential schools or just other things that makes them feel uncomfortable with um, associating themselves with that identity. Or, and at the same time, they're not really fully Canadian or fully white in the sense that they don't feel like they're part of the dominant culture and they might also face a lot of discrimination depending on where they are. Um, that makes it very clear that they're apart from other people. And so when I talk about cultural validation, what I mean is that in a space like a friendship center in which you're able to connect to that cultural identity where you're surrounded by people who have similar experiences and similar um, maybe ideas of how to grow or how to heal or that understand you in a way that maybe people at your school or maybe people in your neighborhood don't understand. Um, it allows you to um, really connect to who you are and also validate all of the fears, all of like the hopes that you have and all the ways that you feel that you um, are who you are in a way that maybe other people can't. And so uh, it allows them to kind of grow and heal in a space that is accepting of them. Um, and obviously this is different for everybody. This is not saying that everybody has that same experience, but it's that's what the environment is supposed to be trying to do and that it does help a lot of people in that way. Okay, that sounds actually a lot like uh, the kind of first, second, and third generation immigrant experience as well. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit different, but it is, there are similarities there. Okay. You also talked to us about something called settler colonialism and how uh, these friendship centers play a role in the ongoing story of of settler colonialism in Canada because Canada is a settler country. So can you tell us a little bit about what settler colonialism means? It, so basically in Canada, um, when the colonists, so people from France and Britain came to Canada, uh, their main objective was to have people sit and settle on the land and through them take out resources and basically take this area as part of the empire of of Britain eventually. Um, this is compared to a place like India, which we were talking about earlier, um, where you had the Britain, British didn't really want to pull any settlers or put anybody in India. What they wanted to do was almost create like a puppet government. And by that, I mean that they would kind of have a go-between between between somebody who was higher up or who they believed was higher up in Indian society. They would say, hey, you are going to be in charge of this, these people, you, we want you to tell us what's happening and basically give us permission to take all the resources. So instead of putting maybe a white person or somebody from British or French origin in that position, they found people actually in the um, area where they were living and used them as a kind of a go-between instead. So whereas here you had communities where people would come in and they'd ship a lot of people over, you didn't really have that in a place like India. And so that creates a very different colonial environment in the two different countries. Now the difficult thing that uh that happens is that after colonization or after official colonization then this leads places on different paths right yeah could you explain like how canada as a settler colony uh, as like might be different from for the experience like let's go back to like india or something like that a country that more or less forced out colonization forces well for one thing if you look at india whereas 
Britain did a lot of damage to India. What they didn't do was they didn't take their land. They didn't move people. They just took resources. So the purpose of going into India, and I don't have a lot of knowledge on the the complicate the complexities with the India case, mm-hmm. but it was more so looking at extracting things out of the environment. Um, whereas in Canada, what you see is that they wanted the land and the resources underneath the land. So they wanted to take indigenous people off of the important pieces of land, and they wanted to take everything from Canada and send it to Britain. So what you had is you, instead of in India, where people basically stayed in the same places, they were just under a different kind of ruling. In Canada, you had indigenous people that were moved onto reserves, and then they were moved sometimes from those reserves onto other reserves because then we decided that we wanted that land because of different needs for resources. Um, and then you also have, you know, extreme, like to an extreme case, right? You have people that are, we're trying to eliminate them. We're trying to, in some cases, exterminate them. And we also want them to be able to work with the settlers in the same environment. And so what you would have in a lot of cases, especially where you had indigenous communities and um, settler communities in very close contact, is what they would try and basically kill um, the quote-unquote Indian in the man. And so that meant trying to um, assimilate them into settler society. Um, and then ultimately the whole idea with the reserves was put them on a piece of land that's not useful, take all the land that is useful, take all the resources off of that, and then hope that by implementing... Um, colonial structures into the structure of the reserve. It will take away all of the indigenous aspects of their culture and therefore eventually they'll be able to come off the reserve, come into something like a city like London and be quote-unquote white. And so that was the whole idea. And so in India, no Indian person there was ever expected to become white in the same way that indigenous person here was. And so the ways in which indigenous people were affected by colonials and the way the Indi- Indians in India were affected by colonial is very, very different. All right. We're threading a long story here, so I just <laughs> want to make sure. Hold on. It's all, it's all important. Um, so then, as you said, the, you had the, for, in, in Canada, this manifests as the residential school system, yeah. a uh, dark legacy that we're all dealing with today, and it's ongoing, probably will be ongoing for quite a while. And you had the you had this discussion about killing the Indian and the man. That's the, that's the old term that they used to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has let, left a lot of scars on these communities. Yeah. Where does the friendship center come in? What does it try to do in this uh, discussion? Well, that's what I'd like to uncover through my research, but basically um, the Friendship Center's aim is to allow for the process of healing to occur in whatever way um, that happens for an individual. So whether it's the idea that, you know, you, your parents were part of the residential school system, you have a lot of um, issues because potentially the abuse happened or you just don't feel connected or whatever your own story is, the Friendship Center is there to try and aid the process of connecting you back to your roots because the purpose of these centers is what people have found is that for indigenous people it's difficult to heal when you don't have cultural like a cultural foundation and so the idea is that by inserting cultural aspects into it you're able to promote this idea of healing and coming back to your culture and really connecting with who you are and you can take as much of that or as little of that as you need but it gives them a space to be like it's okay to be indigenous it's okay to have a different life story than somebody else it's okay to 
be dealing with issues of, you know, cultural abuse, like sexual, physical, emotional abuse because of cultural genocide. That's okay. And this is how we're going to move forward through it. And so it's basically um, one of the ways in which we're trying to heal that history and to try and create a space where it's it's okay and that it's not a bad thing or it's not a crime to be um, be this way and it should actually be appreciated and we should be working towards helping them in that in that sense. Oh, excellent. And so then how does it do that for groups that, as you said, who might feel a little uprooted from that connection because they're two or three generations removed from uh, reserves? Well, this is actually interesting because in a lot of ways, um, scholarship has really rooted um, indigeneity um, in the reserve. So a lot of people uh, in the past have thought that if you don't live on a reserve, you must have some connection to that reserve to be considering yourself indigenous. But indigeneity is a lot more flexible, it's a lot more complex, and it's a lot more nuanced than that particular interpretation. And so the Friendship Center for people who may never have had any connection to the reserve, it allows them to create an indigenous space within a city. And it allows them to make the city indigenous. So it's not the idea that London, for example, is indigenous because it's on indigenous land. We're all living on indigenous land. So the idea that a city is a place of deculturation is more so a colonial idea than it is a fact. And so it allows second or third generation people to come to that realization as well and to connect to their... Um, to, to their culture and who they are and be proud of that in a way without having to force them to go back to a reserve where they might ha- not have the types of institutional support where they would necessarily have in a city. It allows them to exist wherever they want but still be able to connect to their culture and still be appreciated for who they are. That's really cool. So it seems like an overarching theme here is that the impacts this has had on people is like incredibly individual, incredibly subjective. So with respect to your research in investigating how these friendship centers address these issues, how do you go about quantifying the impact that it has on all of these people? Well, for my particular research and for a lot of anthropology as well, we don't really look at um, quantification so much as we look at um, different types of Data. So in my case, I'm not looking at quantifying suffering. I'm not looking at quantifying the impact on a particular group of people like you might if you're looking at psychology or, you know, health studies or things like that. What I'm looking at is taking individual cases, talking to individual people about their own personal experiences, looking at how the center is important to particular people, what it gives them, and then being able to draw certain conclusions off of my analysis to maybe give you know, what may be a preliminary study or might um, be a way to generate new research and kind of pull from that. Because with anything that you're dealing with humans, you're not going to be able to generalize to everybody. Everybody's different. Um, But it's important, even though knowing that you can't generalize, to allow those people to have their stories told and to allow them to talk about their experiences because you you can understand a lot about how people interact with each other and how people work together or what they're feeling and by sharing one story you might be affecting a lot of other people that have the same story but just don't have the platform to be heard for it. Excellent. So you said that uh, shortly before the show that you share a supervisor with another guest that we had on GradCast just uh, maybe a few weeks ago to a month ago, Hannah McGregor. Yeah. And that means that you're also from the kind of umbrella field of linguistic anthropology. Yeah, that would be the same. 
so where does the linguistic aspect of like in her case it's with the Oneida language mm-hmm. where does the language part apply to the work you're doing so for my work what I'm looking at is how people talk about friendship centers and how their experiences are so whereas Hannah's work is very much on the language and revitalizing the language and has very overt uh, tendencies towards linguistic anthropology mine is a little bit different in that the connections are a little bit more um, covert in the sense that it's the methods that I'm using so I'm using a lot of um, interviewing and I'm doing a lot of interview analysis in that sense um, but I'm looking at how people are talking about the center and their experiences and also how looking at how their experiences are potentially influencing the way they talk about those things. So, for example, if somebody says, the, the center is really important because it helps me heal, I'm not just taking those words and being like, okay, that's obviously a fact. I'm looking at, okay, so you're, you know, you're healing through this, but how can I see that in what you're doing? And how does healing, what does that mean to you? What is the ideology behind that? What does that mean? Because what my understanding of healing might be may be very different from somebody else's understanding. And that's really what linguistic anthropology is about, is looking at the meanings behind the words that you're saying, not just what the words are. All right, you preempt my next question. Because <laughs> you're, you're, so you're on two very different ends of a very large kind of subfield in anthropology. Yeah. Okay. So let's move a little bit. You're, you're going to be in May, I believe. Yeah. Um, you're going to be going on a field expedition all the way downtown to the <laughs> Friendship Center in London um, to, do your, to do your formal like research project, mm-hmm. right? So what are you going to do while you're there? So for the first bit, I'm going to be doing participant observation. And so by that, I mean um, what a lot of anthropologists do is we go in to a place and we don't get right to interviewing yet. We start and build relationships. And the way we do that is by sitting, watching people as they go through their everyday lives, participating in the things they're doing, trying to do it as close to what they're doing as possible to understand why they do what they do, how they do what they do, and then on that research you can base your interviews and understand okay so I've been here for a month I've looked at the way you do you conduct your everyday activities I've looked at the services you're doing let's talk about it. let's have a an understanding and really dig deeper into why you think this is important and really base your understanding or how you're interviewing somebody on their own lived experiences because if you ask a question and you don't really have any experience to base it in, your own assumptions might come through more than it, they would otherwise. That's really cool. So um, we're going to get a little bit meta here. Um, <laughs> so you are going to be doing interviews. Yeah. Uh, semi-structured interviews. Yes. Um, I mean, none of us at GradCast were given formal training on how to do interviews. <laughs> I'd be really curious to know uh, what goes into like doing interviews, especially like interviews that can go in multiple directions is what I imagine semi-structured means and doing it in a way that's like academically rigorous and you know you're getting the right information out of out of it so can you tell us a little bit more about what what interviewing for an anthropologist means well in my case and for anthropologists it's kind of we have guidelines but nobody always you don't always follow them but for me semi-structured interviews is the idea that you come in with some themes that you want to talk about but basically it's a conversation it's like sitting here with you guys and talking about my research what you're asking me is based a lot on what i'm telling you you're going to have questions that you didn't write down on the page that end up coming up and you're going to ask them because that's where the conversation is going so a lot of what i do is i'll come in and be like hey i want to talk about a b and c 
But if we start talking about A and you go off on a rant or you go off in a different direction, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow what you want to tell me about. And I'm not going to force you to talk about something you don't care about. We can talk about that later. We can set up another interview. We can talk about it casually after the interview's over or whatever comes up. But I want to know what's important to you. And I'm not going to learn that if I have 20 questions written out and I ask the first question, get the answer, ask the second question, get the answer. So it's very much more so trying to promote a conversation, promote us environment where you're comfortable talking to me as a person, not just as a researcher or somebody who's invading your own space. And so how do you later on kind of get information on those interviews? You record them or take notes and like how do you kind of get the get the data out of all that? Well it depends on how somebody's comfortable with. Ideally for our linguistic anthropologists we love recording people because we loved getting those big quotes and putting them in our papers. But not everybody's comfortable with that. Some people don't like being recorded, they don't like hearing their voice, they don't like knowing that every word that they say gets put in this little tape recorder and then it's uploaded onto your computer and then it's there forever. So you know, some people, I just write down notes. I write down what they're saying as fast as I can possibly can. And obviously, I'm not going to get everything, but you get as much as you can in that case. Some people, you can use the recorder, and at that sense, you can write at the same time that you have your backup as well. And then in my case, I'm going to be hopefully doing video recording as well, so that adds another dimension. But it all depends on the negotiation of people's comfort levels. You know, are you comfortable with me doing this? And sometimes they're comfortable and sometimes they're not. And, you know, you can build on that later as your relationship grows. And, you know, maybe the second interview they're okay with being recorded, but not the first. So you just mentioned something about video recording. And in that blurb that you sent us uh, before the show, you talked about potentially producing an ethnographic film at the end of your research. So what exactly is that? Like, what does that look like? So an ethnographic film is kind of like a documentary, but little bit more boring. So what it does is that what we want to capture is how life really is. And so if you notice in a documentary it's different than a Hollywood film because some of the cuts are longer or it's not as fast paced. You don't have the climax at the top or anything like that. But with a documentary you still can see all the editing that's going into it. They're cutting scenes, they're putting things in, they're doing overlay of voicing. So in my ethnographic video what I want to do is I want to take less of that editing out. I want people's raw experiences. I want to show what they're doing at the center and putting their own voices in. I don't want my voice to come through the video because I want it to be them. I want this video to be their voices, their experiences, their activities on a screen and looking at the ways we can experience life and just showing life on a screen for people. And so that's a lot of long cuts, focusing on things like how do you make bread and just for an hour watching somebody make bread on on camera and looking at how their hands move and how you know how do they need the dough do they need it with like the ball of their hand do they need it with the heel do they put a lot of flour on it or is it really sticky and then they slowly add flour that type of stuff that's the things that you're going to be shooting and putting in ethnographic film whereas that would be more of like what we would call a b-reel or garbage footage in like a documentary or a hollywood film that's really cool and you'll be just giving that to the Friendship Center after you're done? Yeah, the goal of it is to look at why the center is important. So the film would be hopefully looking at a very small program or a cool program that they're really, they find is really important and then looking at how can we showcase it in, so that they can maybe get grant money or do something like that. Excellent. All right, so uh, we have rapidly run out of time. I could talk to you about so many more things. <laughs> I have so much more to talk about, but um, 
Do you have any place like online, just really, really fast, that you uh, that people can keep on top of what you're doing? Uh, I don't currently have anything online right now, but if you did want to contact me about my research, uh, my email address is e. Pitts, P-I-T-T-S, at uwo.ca. That's a really easy one to remember. Thank you. <laughs> and for everyone else out there, this has been GradCast. If you want to come on the show yourself, if you're a grad student, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And if you want to listen to more of the shows, we put up a podcast every single week. Actually, we're putting up two a week. But uh, we're here tonight, 6 p.m., Tuesdays, on CHRW 94.5. And... Also at gradcast.ca, you can find our whole backlog of podcasts. And, of course, you can find that same show on iTunes and listen to it. It's a really great thing for your walk. Make yourself a little bit smarter. We'll see you guys all next week. Take care. Yeah.